a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. We've got some great stuff ahead of us today, and I want to mention that uh, the program today is brought to you by Firesteel.com. We'll be talking about those nifty little fire starters Small enough to fit in your pocket, but uh, enough uh, spark power to start thousands upon thousands of fires, whether it be for roasting marshmallows or saving your life in the time of a disaster. Also, the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, another one of our fine sponsors. We'll talk about them as well. On tap today, we're going to discuss what a principled anti-lockdown movement would look like. That's going to be first up. We'll also talk about how back to school this year is looking very different, particularly for higher education. Yeah, all those years of being able just to turn to the taxpayers and say, hey, you know, you'll pay for this. After all, you need this. Well, COVID has made a few changes, and it's disrupting the whole future of traditional college and pushing a number of alternatives into the mainstream that just weren't there before. I know we talk a lot about masks. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. John Miltimore, one of my favorite writers on the subject of COVID and the lockdowns and so forth, explains how Europe's top health officials still can't decide whether masks are helping or whether they're making things worse. And if you are serious about getting prepared, and frankly, a lot of people find themselves in this category right now, there's this matter of how do we get prepared without digging ourselves into a financial grave? My friend Suzanne Sherman is uh, one who has answers on this. Really great insights. We'll share some of her thoughts coming up as well. Let's talk about a principled anti-lockdown movement. Jeff Tucker, writing for the, the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, has been such a valuable resource. And, and if you haven't yet uh, signed up for their, their daily email updates, can I just suggest go to AIER.org. Sign up for the updates, and if you want to stay well-informed, I'm not saying you have to agree with everything that they write. Just just know that uh, they have some of the best researched, some of the most principle-based observations on what's going on. I have found them to be almost invaluable during the, this whole unraveling that has accompanied COVID-19. And so I strongly recommend their content, and they actually have a, a really nice report that uh, that explains here's what has happened and 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 i just i love getting it from an economist's point of view because they have a tendency to look at things from angles that uh, the rest of us don't in in other words we we tend to be a little superficial myself included you know though i agree with that i'll just (laughs) i'll run with this these guys dig deep and they look for the resources they look for the numbers they look for the facts and figures that can back up what they are are understanding and what they are seeing So there you go. I'll jump off the soapbox there. Let's talk about a principled anti-lockdown movement. Jeff Tucker says shell shocked is a good way to describe the mood in the U.S. for a good part of the spring of 2020. Most of us never thought it could happen here. And he says, I certainly did not, even though I've been writing about pandemic lockdown plans for 15 years. He says, I knew the plans were on the shelf, which is egregious. But I always thought something would stop it from happening. The courts, public opinion, Bill of Rights, 
tradition? How about the core rowdiness of American culture, political squeamishness, or even the availability of information? Something would prevent it. So I believed, he says. Well, so most of us believed. But still it happened. All in a matter of days, March 12th through 16th, 2020, boom, it was over. We were locked down. Schools shut, bars and restaurants closed, no international visitors, theaters shuttered, conferences forcibly ended, sports stopped. We were, to- we were told to stay home and watch movies for two weeks to flatten the curve, and then two weeks stretched to five months. Now, how lucky for those who lived in states that resisted the pressure and stayed open, but even for them, they couldn't visit relatives in other states due to quarantine restrictions and so on. Now, he says lockdowns ended American life as we knew it just five months ago for a virus that 99.4 to 6 percent of those who contract it shake off, for which the median age of death is 70 to 80 with comorbidities, for which there is not a single verified case of reinfection on the planet, for which international successes in managing this relief relied on herd immunity and openness. Still, Jeffrey Tucker says, the politicians who had become dictators couldn't admit to such astonishing failure, so they kept their restrictions in place as a way of covering up what they'd done. That shock of spring has now turned into a summer of wickedness, with everyone pointing fingers at everyone else for the sorry state of life. Patience has run out, and a national viciousness has taken its place. It's evident not only online, but in person, where strangers scream at each other for behaving in ways in which they disapprove. He says what many states are calling open today would have been called closed six months ago. Sports are rare. Theaters aren't open. In some places, you still can't go to gyms or eat inside. Mask mandates are everywhere and mask enforcers, too. People are ratting out their neighbors, sending drones to ferret out house parties and lashing out at each other in public spaces. In a mere five months, lockdowners have manufactured a new form of social structure in which everyone is expected to treat everyone else as a deadly contagion. Even more preposterously, people have come to believe that if you come closer than six feet of another person, a disease spontaneously appears and spreads. Jeff Tucker says America has become an extremely ugly place. This is what lockdowns did. All of this has occurred in the midst of the greatest political divide in many generations. Oddly, you almost predict a person's politics based on their attitude toward the virus, as if sitting political figures are responsible for creating or controlling pathogens that have been a part of the human experience since we first walked and talked. The the politicization of this disease has been a terrible noise that is distracted from the wise disease management that characterized the American way for more than a century. But the American people support this, right? Well, Jeff Tucker says, I'm not so sure. It's true that TV and online media are blaring panic all day, every day. And if that's where you get your information, it surely must feel like a plague. There's also the problem that people feel tremendously powerless right now. They've been locked down, silenced, humiliated, brutalized. The few attempts to get out and protest the lockdowns were greeted with jeers and derision by mainstream media. But it turned out that this was because they were protesting the wrong thing. When the protests against police brutality and racism swept the country, the media wholly approved. Yes, it all felt like gaslighting. Where exactly does American opinion stand on lockdowns today? The polls one cannot trust, 
People know exactly what they're supposed to say to pollsters during a police state lockdown. It's usually a good guess that one-third of Americans take a position that's more or less consistent with human liberty. It's not a fixed group, and it shifts depending on the issue, so that's probably a good guess now. Jeff Tucker says the incredible frenzy of the lying media has confused vast numbers. A poll revealed that many Americans think that 9% of us have died from C-19 when it's really 0.04%. So yes, we have a propaganda problem starting with the New York Times, which just today demanded more aggressive shutdowns than have been carried out in the past. He says the United States has not had a true national lockdown, shuttering only about half the country, compared with 90% in other countries with more successful outbreak control. Now, according that's the New York Times saying that. None of which is true, says Jeff Tucker. This is pure ideological propaganda. The people who are saying true things seem to be the only 1% versus the barrage of nonsense coming from the media culture today. He says we see no discussion in the mainstream press of the empirical evidence at home and abroad that the lockdowns make no sense from a medical and economic perspective. Medical experts for many decades have warned against disturbing social functioning in the event of disease. Preserving freedom has always been the policy priority, 1949 to 1952, 1957 to 58, 68 to 69, and 2005. The American Revolution itself took place in the midst of a smallpox outbreak. Liberalism arose during centuries of pandemics, and yet here we are. He says this country needs a serious anti-lockdown movement, one that's not just political, but cultural and intellectual one that is deeply educated on history, philosophy, law, economics, and all sciences, and can rally around a traditional American civic postulates concerning individual freedom and the limits of governments, and also around universal principles of human rights. If liberty means anything, he says, it means that we are not locked down. It means, moreover, that lockdowns are unconscionable. And then he asks, who should this moment which need not be formally organized, study, believe, and teach. Okay, I'm going to pause there because we've got to take a very quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk about some of his recommendations. Again, this is Jeffrey Tucker writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. We need a principled anti-lockdown movement. And I love the fact that he says it doesn't need to be formally organized. That makes me think there's a chance this one could work. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show where we revel in wrong think. And speaking of wrong think, I have this marvelous article here from Jeffrey A. Tucker, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research on why we need a principled anti-lockdown movement. Now he asked the question, what should this movement, which need not be formally organized, study, believe, and teach? And I love where he starts. He goes right to, to one of my favorite principles, and that is, he says, because property rights are the first violated in lockdown, this movement would need to embrace and champion the right of private ownership and control of businesses, homes, and ourselves. 
Now, Jeff Tucker says the liberal tradition has long affirmed this principle, and it is nothing but appalling that the lockdowns took place as if private property doesn't exist. Suddenly, everything and everyone belonged to the state, and it would be the state to declare what is or is not essential, or even what is elective versus non-elective for your medical care. Jeffrey Tucker says it should embrace the freedom, this movement should embrace the freedom to choose our associations. Since that's what came under attack, next, we couldn't gather in groups, hold conferences, go to the movies, do anything not socially distant. He says, by the way, I'm so sick of that phrase with dubious origins, I could barely even type it, or even go to another state, for that matter, to visit friends and relatives. This movement, he says, needs to celebrate and defend religious freedom, since incredibly, most houses of worship were forcibly closed by government. The modern idea of freedom came about in the late Middle Ages, when exhaustion from religious wars gradually gave rise to the idea of tolerance. Religious tolerance was the first great freedom that came to be codified in law. And he says it's stunning that it was so flagrantly, flagrantly rather, violated this year. It must come to terms with free enterprise and the innovation that comes with it. How much wealth and creativity has been lost in the lockdowns? It's unfathomable. The biggest victims have been small and medium-sized businesses, whereas large tech firms have thrived. Jeff Tucker says to start and manage a commercial enterprise is a human right. The realization of which was the great achievement of modern life as it spread prosperity throughout the world and lifted up the world's people from the state of nature and to levels of the entrenched hierarchies of old. Now, part of this liberal ideal is free trade, which has come under fire from both the left and right. Don't forget that Donald Trump kicked off this dictatorial frenzy with his sudden and shocking bans of travel from China and Europe, which resulted in a frenzied and frantic mass crowding of airports in the days following. He did it with a stroke of a pen, overriding all his advisors. And he still brags about it. How much did this extreme reaction here inspire governors to do the same? Now, of course, his actions reflect his persistent isolationism, not just on trade, but on immigration, too. Even now, Tucker says that Trump is refusing to allow foreign workers into the U.S., except for emergency cases, because he incorrectly believes this will help the American job market. And Jeffrey Tucker says it's an outrage. Free enterprise entitles the employment of anyone from anywhere. This is a policy that's good for everyone. He says as long as we're talking about freedom fundamentals... Let's talk about masks. They become exactly what the New England Journal of Medicine called them, a talisman. They are symbols of social commitment and political loyalty. A free society rallies around individual choice. So if masks make a person feel safe, or if it makes them feel that they're keeping others safe from their breath, fine. But when people attack others for resisting wearing them and are apparently upset at the seeming appearance of rebellion from rules, this is imposition and intolerance. Perhaps understandable given the times, but still illiberal. Laws requiring face coverings in public would never have been tolerated even six months ago. And yet here we are, not only with laws, but a growing number of recruits within the public to enforce them with appalling rudeness. It's hardly the first time in history. American sumptuary laws in colonial times mandated that people not dress in fancy clothes for reasons of piety and social conformism. Part of the capitalist revolution included the freedom to dress as one wants and the mass availability of fashion for everyone. The mandatory mask movement and its shock troops among the public is but a revival of 
Puritanism. He says the lockdowns crushed the economic prospects of millions and government attempted to make up for that with wild spending of other people's money and an unprecedented use of the printing press as if government can somehow paper over the destruction it caused. Therefore, the anti-lockdown movement needs a commitment to fiscal sanity and sound money. We now know that a government with the capacity to create unlimited amounts of paper money cannot be constrained. And he says this needs to be fixed. As for health, the topic or excuse that unleashed the lockdowns in the first place, we should surely learn from this experience that politics and medicine need to be separated with a high wall. We have medical professionals who are traditionally in charge of mitigating disease, and they do so in line with their own professional associations and best judgment. Politics should never override the doctor-patient relationship, nor presume to know what's better for us than our own physicians. He says, on the matter of education, governors from all over the country cruelly locked down all the schools, even though there is near zero threat to kids from the virus and there's no verified case of a child passing C-19 to an adult. Perhaps a small silver lining is that we've learned more about how parents can exercise more control over education than they previously had. The anti-lockdown movement needs to embrace a multiplicity of educational alternatives, including the possibility of full privatization so that education can again be part of the free enterprise matrix. Now, he says it's it's true that anti-lockdown carries a negative connotation. Is there a better word to convey the positive dimension? His preference is the word liberalism. Progressives have abandoned it. It's also correct from a historical and international perspective. Liberalism and modernity are inextricably linked in history, says Benjamin Constant. A liberalism of the future needs to be prepared to understand, advocate, and fight for freedom in a non-lockdown world. No exceptions. Which takes us to the final point. Whether this movement is working in the realms of academia, culture, journalism, or politics, there is an absolute urgency that it exercise unrelenting moral courage and integrity, ferociously. It should also be uncompromising on crucial points. It must be willing to speak even when it's unfashionable to do so, even when the media is screaming the opposite, even when the Twitter mob floods your notifications, even when you are shamed for thinking for yourself. This time around, he says, as you surely have noticed, even the voices of good people with good ideas fell silent in fear. And this fear must be banished. The blowback against this despotism will come, but it's not enough. We need character, integrity, courage, and truth. And this perhaps matters more than ideology and knowledge. Knowledge without the willingness and courage to speak is useless. Because, as E.C. Harwood taught us, for integrity there is no substitute. In the end, the case for unlocking society is a spiritual matter. What is your life worth, and how do you want to live it? How important are the hard-won freedoms you exercise daily? What are the lives of liberties, and what are the lives and liberties of others? These are everything. Freedom has never prevailed without passionate and courageous voices to defend it. Well, we have the tools now, many more than before. They can throttle us, but they can't finally shut us down. The notion that we would fail to speak for fear of the Twitter mob is absurd. This movement, whether it's called anti-lockdown or just plain liberalism, must reject the wickedness and compulsion of this current moment in American life. Jeff Tucker says it needs to counter the brutalism of lockdowns. It needs to speak and act with humane understanding and high regard for social functioning under freedom and the hope for the future that comes with it.
The enemies of freedom and human rights have revealed themselves for the world to see. He says, let there be justice. The well-being of all of us is at stake. I'll have this posted in the show notes. Read it. Share it widely if you are so inclined. The show is brought to you today by Firesteel.com. Go to their website. You're going to find a bunch of demo videos. You're going to find many different fire starter products. I tell you that these are not cheapos. These units that create a spark with which you can start a fire under almost any conditions, they are not the cheapest thing out there. Neither are they prohibitively expensive, but they are essential for any truly prepared person. Firesteel.com. When you go to checkout, put in my name, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. They'll give you a nice 10% discount at checkout. Firesteel.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show, where we revel in wrong think. You know, I'm toying around with this idea, and and I'm really serious about this. I want to I want to I want to create some swag. In particular, what I would like to do is uh, create a nice coffee mug or a tea mug or whatever. Basically, mugs with my mug or at least my logo that my daughter Mason des- designed for me on it. It's uh, if you if you've seen the the show logo, you know what I'm talking about. The beard, the glasses, and the words "Revel in Wrong Think." I mean, I'm thinking big here. I'm thinking that perhaps one day this will be a movement that will sweep the world and we shall all revel in wrong think. Okay, I'm trying to think big here, but frankly, I also just think it would be really cool to have some swag. So I will work on that. But when it becomes available, I will let you know. And then uh, then you can, uh, you know, blow up my website, thebrianhideshow.com with your orders for these incredible mugs and other swag. All right. Thank you for letting me think aloud. Let's talk about how COVID-19 is disrupting the future of higher education. I know this is on a lot of people's minds as as back-to-school time is approaching. It's going to look very, very different this year. And this is true for kids in public schools. It's true even in private schools. But I'm seeing this in higher education as well. I have a son who attends Utah Valley University. And... It has been so interesting to see the back and forth. Okay, will there be classes actually in person or is it all going to be online? And sometimes, well, it looks like it's going to be primarily remote learning. No, we're going to do this one because, you know, you have to have a lab in person. Anyway, there's there's this balancing act that's been going on. And there is no doubt that uh, the, the disruptive effect of this pandemic is taking its toll on higher education. One of the reasons for this is, you know, higher education has always kind of had the option of of letting the taxpayers pay for things. You know, if it, well, you know, in the interest of higher education, you know, many of these uh, institutions will just turn to the state. Well, we need this funding. We need that funding. And of course, because we all know education's a good thing, you know, that funding is just there on behalf of the taxpayers. But now alternatives to traditional college are starting to gain ground. And it looks like the pandemic and some of the <clears throat> adjustments that have to take place along with it may be the catalyst that pushes these alternatives into the mainstream. Ben Wilterdink, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says over the last decade, higher education in America has faced an intense amount of scrutiny. Rising costs and increasing levels of student loan debt, coupled with falling academic rigor, have promoted some tough questions for America's colleges and universities. 
but enrollment continues to climb. And although recent alter, although alternative pathways rather to good paying jobs have sprung up in recent years, most are still considered far outside the mainstream pathway to co- of college as the route to a successful career. However, he says, as the coronavirus pandemic continues to change different aspects of everyday life, one of its more lasting consequences could be how it changes the way Americans think about higher education. The primary point of contention is the fact that the cost of attending a four-year university has skyrocketed compared to the cost of attendance of previous generations. College tuition has more than doubled since the 1980s, outpacing any increases in the payoff graduates can expect from attending. And those rising costs have saddled millions with a substantial amount of debt. By the way, I'm going to add this footnote, unforgivable student loan debt. Now, he says student loan debt now totals almost $1.6 trillion and is the second highest category of consumer debt only behind mortgages. There are currently 44.7 million Americans paying off student loan debts, and the median amount of debt is $17,000. Furthermore, unlike most other kinds of debt, student loan debt taken on usually in the late teens or early 20s can rarely be discharged during bankruptcy proceedings. Meanwhile... The academic rigor of the institutions has fallen precipitously. Grade inflation has increased unchecked for decades. A nationwide study of the history of college grading finds that an A grade was awarded in colleges nationwide 15% of the time during the 1960s. However, an A is now the most common grade given, and the percentage of A's has tripled to 45% nationwide. Well, doggone it, man. I wish I was back in school. We actually had to work for him back in my day. Currently, he says 75% of all grades awarded are now either A's and B's. This has meant that modern students rarely face incentives to work as hard as students from previous generations. According to economists Philip Babcock and Mindy Marks, compared to today's students, students in the middle of the 20th century spent nearly 50% more time, around 40 hours weekly, studying. Now, these da- the data are easily corroborated by frequent anecdotes from veteran college professors. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, Ohio University professor Richard Vetter explained, I am part of the problem. I've been teaching for 55 years and I assign far less reading, demand less writing, and give higher grades than I did two generations ago. On a podcast, Brown University professor Glenn Laurie described distinctly the different nature of grades in modern higher education compared to previous generations. He said, quote, you can find an education in the university. You can find one at Brown. You can find one at Berkeley or Stanford. But you can also spend four years there and not learn a GD thing worth knowing and come out with a degree. Grade inflation. Grade inflation is a horrible corruption, in my opinion. He says there's no turning back, man. There is no turning back, but it's I now have to basically anticipate the possibility that a kid's going to go home and take a bottle of pills or something if I give him a C. You know, you've ruined my life. I'll never get into the law school. I'll never get into medical school, Professor Lowry. You can't do this to me. You can't do this. You know, whatever. And I say, man, look at that paper you wrote. You didn't write a very good paper. I'm sorry. But I end up with the B anyway half the time because I just can't do it. End quote. Dang. Well, despite these well-documented developments, the wage premium associated with obtaining a college degree remains high. Millions of new students enroll each year. Furthermore, employers are increasingly requiring a college degree for positions that did not require one in the past and likely don't require one now. 
This phenomenon, known as degree inflation, severely and unnecessarily limits the potential for those without a college degree to access higher or increasingly even middle-income career paths. Moreover, the practice is also likely disadvantageous for employers who are both unnecessarily paying wage premiums for college-educated workers, hiring workers who have disproportionately high turnover rates and narrowing the field of potential employees. He says relatively few employers have dropped these requirements, although there are some recent examples of top-tier companies like Google or Apple that have. Perhaps more will follow suit in the future, but for the most part, employers seem content to keep such requirements in place. The result, he says, is a rather bleak status quo, with employers wasting resources, students saddling themselves with increasingly burdensome amounts of debt, and the institutions of higher learning delivering less actual education to their students. All the while, the credential gap is fueling a deepening economic division between Americans. Rather than college delivering students a wage premium, as is often touted by proponents, a labor market penalty for non-attendance seems more accurate. But with employers insisting on a degree for desirable jobs and considerable government subsidies ensuring a seemingly endless supply of new enrollees, the cycle appeared unlikely to change anytime soon. Then the coronavirus pandemic swept the nation. With often very valid concerns about spreading the virus and endangering both students and faculty, many colleges and universities are considering a transition from in-person classes to either entirely virtual classes or some sort of hybrid approach. And Ben Wilterdink says the, the Chronicle of Higher Education is tracking how universities intend to operate for the fall 2020 semester. They've compiled a database of nearly 3,000 colleges. He says, as of this writing, just 23% of colleges are planning to conduct classes either fully or primarily in person. Seriously, less than a quarter of them? With 26.8% reporting, they plan to conduct classes either fully or primarily online. And get this, a substantial 27% reporting that their plans are to be determined. With many universities closed for the fall 2020 semester, a greater number of graduating high school students are already considering taking a gap year. Complicating matters further, a recent survey of U.S. college students say, finds that 93% say tuition should be lowered if classes are online. That same survey found that 75% of college students are unhappy with the quality of online classes and 35% have considered withdrawing from school. Now, while some colleges have lowered their tuition in response to moving classes to an online format, many have been quick to point out that moving classes online does not translate to lower costs for the institution. Yeah, well, maybe if you didn't have all those buildings and classrooms to maintain, that would be different, right? All right. We've got to take a real quick break here, so we'll come back to this article again. Ben Wilterdink is the author that COVID-19 is disrupting the future of higher education. Now, there is some good news. I will share that with you on the other side of the break. I'll tell you right now, the good news is that uh, there are alternatives, which have been there pretty much all along, but now they're finally starting to find their way into the mainstream, and that is where the golden lining can be found. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Well, hello there. Once again, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article from uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. Ben Wilterdink is the author, and it talks about how COVID-19 is disrupting the future of higher education. And one of the things he points out is that even though many of the universities and colleges have said, yeah, 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 we're thinking about doing classes online, few have been willing to uh, lower their cost for those online classes, saying that, well, just because we moved them online, that doesn't translate to lower costs for the institution. He says for smaller colleges that can't even afford relatively small drops in enrollment, the changes brought about by the pandemic could mean that closing, they have to close their doors permanently. And while it's too early to make sweeping claims about how the pandemic will change the nature of higher education in America, he says these trends suggest that students are more open to alternatives to the four-year college pathway to employment than they have been in recent memory. And the good news here is several promising alternatives have been gaining ground over the last several years, and disruption in higher education, and typical higher education that is, could be the catalyst that pushes such alternatives further into the mainstream. One of the most successful alternatives is Lambda School. That's an online school that trains students to become web developers or data scientists. It first became popular with its pioneering use of income share agreements, or ICES, as a way to offer students a way to enroll and learn the necessary skills for a successful career without paying tuition up front. Instead, payments are only made after the student becomes employed and earns above a certain level of income, aligning the incentive for both the student and the school. Lambda School offers a nine-month full-time program or an 18-month part-time program, and they've successfully placed their graduates in well-paying jobs at top-tier companies, earning a reputation for being a highly effective alternative to the traditional four-year college model. In response to the ongoing pandemic, Lambda School has reduced its upfront tuition by 50%. Another promising alternative, I was happy to see this one, Praxis. Rather than offering a degree, Praxis offers a one-year program that includes six months of hands-on skill building, followed by at least six months of time-building skills and a track record in a job. Now, participants can either pay up front or defer payment until they've landed a jo- until after they've landed a job. Praxis will even return the cost of tuition if a graduate of the boot camp is unable to find a job within six months. The focus is on building skills and gaining real-world experience that result in a starting point for a successful career, while bypassing the credential-focused approach of traditional higher education. Already well-suited to students interested in taking a gap year, Praxis is an interesting up-and-coming alternative for those unsure whether the traditional four-year college route would be a good fit for them. He says the traditional career pathway of getting a degree at a traditional four-year college is not likely to change anytime soon, not least because the institutions of higher education enjoy so much taxpayer support. But as the pandemic continues to push students toward alternatives, the pitfalls of the traditional approach to higher education will become increasingly difficult to ignore. And as the scrutiny on the institutions of higher education builds and more Americans become disenchanted with the model, there may come a tipping point that results in a range of interesting and effective alternatives. And he says those decisions made by students in the midst of the pandemic could be a significant step toward that future. I know. Well, isn't he looking on the bright side? But I think that really is a good positive way of looking at things. All right, let's shift gears here for a moment. I know there's still a lot of stuff going on. You know, one of the things that I see regarding the mask debates right now, the uh, the mask issue, the mandates, 
is I'm seeing a lot more uh, confrontation when people go into a shopping area without uh, without a mask. And I'm not saying that this is this is guaranteed going to happen. And when you go to, you know, your your favorite uh, grocery store or something, but the videos are really starting to pop up. And it's disturbing how regularly you see them. And here's the, the most disturbing part. In no way is the science settled. I don't care what uh, what articles you've seen either for or against. The bottom line is there are still a lot of questions as to whether masks really help or whether they make things worse in terms of reducing the spread of COVID-19. And a lot of people have become evangelists of sort. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says Europe's top health officials, for instance, are saying masks aren't helpful in beating COVID-19. Now, I'm going to have a link to this article in the show notes. You can access it for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. Lots of good links, lots of good charts in here. John is a very, very principled researcher as well as writer, and and his stuff is, is well worth considering. He says, Denmark boasts one of the lowest COVID-19 death rates in the world. As of August 4th, the Danes have suffered 616 COVID-19 deaths. That's according to figures from John, Johns Hopkins University. Now, that's less than one-third the number of Danes who die from pneumonia or influenza in a given year. And despite this success, Danish leaders recently found themselves on the defensive. The reason is that Danes aren't wearing face masks, and local authorities, for the most part, aren't even recommending them. I'm sorry, I'll give you a moment to clutch your pearls if you're so inclined. <laughs> This prompted Berlingsky, the country's oldest newspaper, to complain that Danes had positioned themselves to the right of Trump. Berlingsky says the whole world is wearing face masks, even Donald Trump. Well, that apparently didn't sit well with Danish health officials, and they responded by noting that there is little conclusive evidence that face masks are an effective way to limit the spread of respiratory viruses. Henning Bungard, chief physician at Denmark's Rig Hospital, said all these countries recommending face masks haven't made their decisions based on new studies. Apparently, uh, this is according to Bloomberg News, Denmark has since updated its guidelines to encourage, but not require, the use of masks on public transit where social distancing may not be possible. But as John Miltimore points out, Denmark is not alone. Despite a global stampede of mask wearing, data show that 80 to 90 percent of people in Finland and Holland say they never wear masks when they go out. That's a sharp contrast to the 80 or 90 percent of people in Spain and Italy who say they always wear masks when they go out. Now, Dutch public health officials recently explained why they're not demanding or not recommending rather masks. Medical care minister Tamara Van Ark said from a medical point of view, there is no evidence of a medical effect of wearing face masks. So we decided not to impose a national obligation. Others, echoing statements similar to the U.S. Surgeon General from early March, said masks could make individuals sicker and exacerbate the spread of the virus. Cohen Behrens, spokesman for the National Institute of Public Health and the Environment, says face masks in public places are not necessary based on all the current evidence. There is no benefit. And there could even be negative impact. In Sweden, where COVID-19 deaths have slowed to a crawl, public health officials say they see no point in requiring individuals to wear masks. Anders Tegnell, Sweden's top infectious disease expert, says with numbers diminishing very quickly in Sweden, we see no point in wearing a face mask in Sweden, not even on public transport. So what's going on with masks, asks John Miltimore. 
The top immunologists and epidemiologists in the world can't decide if masks are helpful in reducing the spread of COVID-19. In fact, he says, we've seen organizations like the World Health Organization and the CDC go back and forth in their recommendations. And he's got, you know, the official postings from them. So for the average person, it's confusing and it's frustrating. And it's also a bit frightening, considering that we've seen people denounced in public for not wearing a mask while picking up a bag of groceries. The truth is, Masks have become the new wedge issue, the latest, the latest phase of the culture war. Mask opponents tend to see mask wearers as frady cats or virtue signaling sheeple who willfully ignore basic science. Mask supporters, on the other hand, often see people who refuse to wear masks as selfish trumpkins who willfully ignore basic science. And John Miltimore says there's not a lot of middle ground to be found, so there's no easy way to sit this one out. We all have to go outside, so at some point we're required to don the mask or not. It's clear from the data that despite the impression of Americans as selfish rebel cowboys who won't wear a mask to protect others, Americans are wearing masks far more than the people than many people in European countries. Polls show Americans wearing masks at record levels. Though a political divide remains, about 98% of Democrats report wearing masks in public compared to 66% of Republicans and 85% of independents. Now, those numbers are, to some extent, the product of mask requirements in cities and states. But John Miltimore says whether one's pro-mask or anti-mask, the fact of the matter is face coverings have become politicized to an unhealthy degree, which stands to only further pollute the science. Last month, for example, researchers at Minnesota Center for Infectious Disease and Research and Policy responded to demands that they remove an article that found mask requirements were, quote, not based on sound data. Now, the school, to its credit, did not remove the article, but instead opted to address the objections critics of their research had raised. Now, there's much more to this article. I will post it in the show notes. It is worth your time. John Miltimore is a terrific writer. And it's well worth checking out this article of his. Europe's top health officials say masks aren't helpful in beating COVID-19. I'm not telling you you should wear one or you shouldn't, but I am going to maintain that's your choice. And nobody should be bullying you one way or the other. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thanks again for joining us. Got some great stuff coming up in the next hour. This is The Brian Hyde Show.